Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You can download Spacetime as a free twice-weekly podcast just about everywhere, including iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, Audio Boom, and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. The show's also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C. Coming up on Space Time, the strange new outer solar system body defying scientific explanation. More evidence supporting the existence of a ninth planet in our solar system. And neutrinos offer new clues as to why we live in a universe made of matter rather than antimatter, but still no evidence for the existence of a fourth kind of neutrino, the sterile neutrino. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. Astronomers have just detected a new trans-Neptunian object on the outer rim of our solar system on a strange, highly unusual orbit. The discovery, reported on the pre-press physics website archive.org, indicates the newly found object, nicknamed Niku, has a retrograde and highly inclined orbit around the Sun. As the name implies, trans-Neptunian objects are bodies which circle the Sun beyond the orbit of Neptune. And an object on a retrograde orbit is circling the Sun in the opposite direction to the planets and most other bodies in the solar system, which circle the Sun in what's called a prograde orbit, that is one which is in the same direction in which the Sun rotates. As well as orbiting the Sun in the wrong direction, Niku's orbits also incline to the ecliptic, that is the orbital plane of the solar system, around which the planets orbit, by some 110 degrees, meaning it's almost perpendicular in its orbit to the rest of the solar system. Such objects simply shouldn't exist, based on science's current understanding of planetary formation by way of accretion disks around stars. You see, the way we understand it, the angular momentum of the Sun's rotation forces everything else in the accretion disk to move in the same direction. Matthew Holman from the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, who was one of the astronomers involved in the discovery of Niku using the PanSTARRS Panoramic Survey Telescope in Hawaii, says while not the first retrograde trans-Neptunian object, Niku's extreme orbital tilt suggests that there's a lot more going on in the outer solar system than astronomers are aware of. It's possible Niku was placed into its current orbit after a collision with another body, or it's been gravitationally perturbed after passing too close to another object. Niku appears to be about 160,000 times fainter than Neptune, and that means, depending on its albedo, it's probably only about 200 kilometres in diameter. Niku may also have been a previously discovered but then lost centaur, named 2011 KT19. Centaurs are minor planets orbiting the Sun in the outer solar system beyond Jupiter, and they have some characteristics of both comets and asteroids. Current estimates indicate there are probably at least 44,000 centaurs more than a kilometre wide in the outer solar system. Generally speaking, they have fairly unstable orbits, which cross or have crossed the orbits of one or more of the giant planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus and Neptune, and they're also thought to have rather dynamic lifetimes lasting just a few million years. The fact that they share characteristics of both comets and asteroids explains their generic name of centaurs, the mythical being of Greek and Roman mythology, which was a mixture of horse and human. 
The orbital characteristics of 2011 KT-19, if that's what Naku is, have already been compared to those of another Centaur, 2008 KV-42 Drac, the first trans-Neptunian object discovered to have a retrograde orbit. 2011 KT-19 Naku, 2008 KV-42 Drac and four other trans-Neptunian objects all appear to occupy a common orbital plane, with three in prograde and three in retrograde orbits. The probability of this alignment occurring simply by chance is extremely low, just 0.016%. That means some common factors probably been involved in getting them to their current orbit. Because the precession directions of prograde and retrograde orbits are in opposite directions, these orbits should mean these bodies leave their common plane within a few million years. Two new studies claim our solar system's tilt could be explained by the existence of a ninth planet out beyond Neptune. The new research, reported on the pre-press physics website archive.org, uses computer models to show how a hypothetical ninth planet of a specific mass and orbit would influence the orbital plane or ecliptic of the solar system, causing it to tilt by 6 degrees in comparison to the Sun's equator. In an ideal system, the planet-forming accretion disk around a newly forming star should extend out from the stellar equator. As planets begin to form out of this accretion disk, their orbit should follow the same alignment. The new models show how an eccentric orbit of a Planet 9 mass object would over time tilt the solar system's ecliptic plane. The findings follow reports earlier this year of an unusually eccentric alignment of Kuiper Belt objects out beyond the orbit of Neptune, which indicate the possible existence of a ninth solar system planet, at least 10 times larger than the Earth. While one of the new studies focuses specifically on the influence of a 10 Earth mass planet in a specific orbit, the other also includes the effects of the Sun's equator not being fixed and moving over time. A new study of elemental subatomic particles called neutrinos has provided scientists with new insights into why the universe is made up of more matter than antimatter. Physics tells scientists that equal amounts of matter and antimatter would have been created 13.8 billion years ago when the universe came into existence in what we euphemistically refer to as the Big Bang. Because matter and antimatter annihilate each other as soon as they come into contact, the universe should have disappeared virtually as soon as it formed. Yet clearly the universe exists, and clearly it's a universe dominated by matter rather than antimatter. Neutrinos are weakly interacting subatomic elemental particles. In fact, they're so weakly interacting, literally trillions of them are passing through you right now. With the exception of photons, neutrinos are the most abundant fundamental particles in the cosmos. Neutrinos are generated in particle collisions such as nuclear reactions. And as they travel out from their source, they oscillate between three types or flavours, known as the electron neutrino, the muon neutrino and the tau neutrino. Now two separate scientific collaborations, the T2K experiment in Japan and the NOVA experiment at Fermilab near Chicago, have both reported new insights into how neutrinos behave. T2K scientists have reported a key difference in the behaviour between neutrinos and their antimatter counterparts, antineutrinos, 
They found that neutrinos appear to oscillate at different rates compared to antineutrinos. Specifically, they found that the probability of a muon neutrino oscillating into an electron neutrino is higher than the probability of a muon antineutrino oscillating into an electron antineutrino. Now, according to theory, these oscillation rates should be similar. And so this new discovery violates a long-standing physics principle known as charge parity symmetry. And that's important because violation of charge parity symmetry could hold the key as to why the universe is composed mostly of matter. While the T2K findings aren't regarded as statistically significant yet, they nevertheless provide an intriguing hint that the neutrino could well provide new breakthroughs in science's understanding of the universe. The T2K experiment comprises a proton accelerator called J-Park, which is located on the east coast of Japan, and the Super Kamiokanda neutrino detector, some 300 kilometers away on the Japanese west coast. The experiment involves shooting a beam of neutrinos from the accelerator to the detector, with scientists observing how the muons change and interact. Like T2K, the NOVA experiment also looks at how neutrinos oscillate between muon, tau and electron flavours. However, it also looks at how these neutrinos can exist in three different states of mass. You see, the trouble is, neutrinos are really hard to study because they keep changing their identities. To make things even more complicated, the three flavours don't necessarily correspond with the three mass states neutrinos can come in. The way flavours and masses relate to each other in the neutrino world is a process called mixing, and the NOVA scientists have discovered evidence that one of the three neutrino mass states might not include equal parts of muon and tau flavours of neutrino as previously thought. This is called non-maximal mixing. The NOVA experiment hasn't yet collected quite enough data to confirm the discovery of non-maximal mixing, but the initial results are intriguing. It seems something's going on which scientists simply don't understand. Neutrinos are important because they're the only matter particles in the standard model of particle physics which interact exclusively via a fundamental force known as the weak nuclear force. The electromagnetic force is well understood, and physicists also have a pretty good handle on the strong nuclear force. But the remaining two forces, gravity and the weak nuclear force, are still considered very bizarre. Because of that, it's an important probe both into the standard model of particle physics and also for scientists looking well beyond the standard model into what we're now calling new physics. Meanwhile, efforts to find a fourth type or flavour of neutrino, known as the sterile neutrino, have failed to identify the long-hypothesised particle. If discovered, the sterile neutrino would have helped explain a number of puzzles that have already suggested the existence of more than the three known flavours of neutrinos. Ultimately, it could help resolve the long-standing mystery of the origin of dark matter, as well as the matter-antimatter asymmetry in the universe, which we've just been looking at. However, in order to identify the sterile neutrino, if it exists, a number of major hurdles need to be overcome. Firstly, sterile means this long hypothesized particle would not interact with matter except possibly through gravity. However, while it doesn't interact with matter itself, it would theoretically at least dramatically interfere with the way conventional neutrinos interact with matter. The only way to detect a sterile neutrino would be to catch it in the act of transforming into one of the other three types of neutrinos. And this is where the problem lies. 
The latest results from the IceCube Neutrino Observatory at the South Pole are telling scientists there's almost certainly no such particle in existence. The findings reported in the journal Physical Review Letters are based on two independent analyses from the massive Antarctic detector, each consisting of a year's worth of data. That's about 100,000 neutrino events. The analyses were performed using so-called atmospheric neutrinos. These are neutrinos created when cosmic rays crash into particles in the Earth's upper atmosphere. The groups conducting the analysis scoured the hundreds of thousands of neutrino events that reached the South Pole detector after first coursing through the Earth from the sky in the Northern Hemisphere. Because only neutrinos can travel through the planet unimpeded, the Earth serves as a really effective screen, filtering out all other types of particles. The IceCube Neutrino Observatory consists of 5,160 light-detecting sensors frozen in crystal-clear Antarctic ice more than a kilometre below the South Pole. The neutrinos are detected when they occasionally crash into a nuclei, creating a muon and subsequently a telltale streak of blue Sherenkov radiation. The search conducted by the IceCube teams looked at neutrino events occurring in the 320 gigaelectron volt to 20 teraelectron volt energy range. If they exist, sterile neutrinos would have produced a very distinctive signature within this range. Hints of a possible fourth kind of neutrino, the sterile neutrino, have come from several different experiments, including the Los Alamos National Laboratory in the 1990s and more recently the Daya Bay Nuclear Reactor Facility near Hong Kong. But distinctive evidence of the particle's existence has continued to elude scientists. One of the study's authors, Professor Francis Halzen from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, says a fourth type of neutrino would have changed everything. Discovering the sterile neutrino would have thrown a wrench into the stand-in model of particle physics, which allows for only three known types of neutrino. In fact, Halzen says it's all a bit like Elvis. People see hints of the sterile neutrino everywhere, and it's this growing collection of hints which had convinced the theorists that it exists. The appeal of a fourth kind of neutrino could help solve a number of cosmological puzzles, such as the mismatch between matter and antimatter in the universe and the origin of dark matter. Failing to detect the elusive particle, however, means physics remains in the dark about the origin of the tiny neutrino mass, or for that matter, why they have any mass in the first place. And time now to turn our eyes to the skies. Jonathan Nally is the editor of Australian Sky and Telescope magazine. And he joins us now to check out the night skies of August on Skywatch. Well, let's start with the constellations. The Southern Cross, which is the constellation everyone wants to, to spot if they haven't already found out where it is, it's in the south southeastern part of the sky at mid-evening at the moment during the August and, and into sort of early part of September, about a third of the way up from the horizon. So not due south, but a little bit around to the right, if you, if you get what I mean, if you're looking to the south. And at present, it's sort of lying on its side and tilted slightly downward. And as the night progresses and the Earth turns, the sky appears to turn in the opposite direction. And so the, the Southern Cross will swing swir- further and further downward into the south. And so it's basically completely upside down uh, due south. So if you want to spot the Southern Cross, look down the south, you really can't miss it. It's a, it's a pretty small constellation, but it's got some nice bright stars. And it looks a bit more like a kite 
than across. And of course, like Orion, it's one of the two constellations that are really easy to spot and consequently it's a good place to start any tour of the night sky that one plans on doing. Well, it is, yeah. And I said that it's a small constellation. People are actually surprised, particularly people from, you know, the Northern Hemisphere that I've had friends down here and they've said, oh, it's the Southern Cross. And they say, oh, actually, it's really small. And in fact, of the 88 modern constellations, it is the smallest in area. It's, it's really tiny, but it is prominent. As you say, like Orion, it is a prominent constellation. And once you find that, then you can sort of hop around to the other constellations. Now, high overhead at the moment is the magnificent constellation Scorpius, and right next to it is Sagittarius. And these two constellations are right in the thick of the Milky Way. And when you're looking at Sagittarius, you're basically looking directly into the heart of our Milky Way galaxy. We're really lucky here in the Southern Hemisphere, particularly Australia and New Zealand, because for us, these constellations do appear really high up in our sky. And the higher something is up in the sky, the, the better viewing you get of it, because you're looking through less atmosphere. And let's face it, if you have the terrible misfortune, I'm sorry for our Northern Hemisphere listeners, but if you have the terrible misfortune not to live in the Southern Hemisphere, sometimes you can't see them at all because they're down below the horizon for people in other parts of the world. So we're really quite lucky here and that's why it's one of the reasons why um, astronomy really took off in Australia a long time ago because we can see some of the really good things down here. We've got a box seat basically so uh, it was a really great place to get observatories built. Yeah and not only do we see the best things towards the middle of our galaxy but also we get to see what's happening outside the galaxy as well. Large and small Magellanic clouds are just down the road it would seem. Yeah the the two um, uh, really prominent galaxies uh, in the southern sky uh, you can see with the naked eye I mm. call them Magellanic clouds Magellan spotted them and it's, they're named after him and they do look a bit like clouds because they're quite big that's because they're close so if you get a really dark sky site you're out in the bush somewhere or out maybe at sea or something anywhere away from light and if you look down south right at the moment they're sort of really low down in the south yeah you think well those two sort of they sort of smudgy clouds they're a big one over there and a slightly smaller yeah. one over there but they are actual entire galaxies saw them for uh, the first time when I was on a train traveling from Sydney to Melbourne, believe it or not. Looked out the right? window, it was late at night, lights were off inside the train, and uh, and as I looked out the window, there they were off the horizon. Brilliant. Mm. Yeah, it's tremendous. I mean, just to, to see these amazing galaxies, you can't see them at all from the Northern Hemisphere, basically. Yeah, things like that, and, and they're great, uh, what, what scientists, I guess, call laboratories. Uh, they're natural laboratories out there in space, and we can study them and get a good idea of how galaxies tick, or other galaxies even though they are slightly uh, peculiar sorts of galaxies. But, uh, yeah, lots of things like that. So the, the middle part of our galaxy, those two galaxies and various other things are all best seen from down here. Now, looking at the planets and staying in the region sort of overhead where Scorpius and Sagittarius are, Mars and Saturn are up there at the moment, floating along in Scorpius. And along with the constellations Brightest Star and Tares, they all make up a nice prominent triangle at the moment. But they're going to shift around a little bit. So take a look on the night of August the 24th because Saturn, Mars and Antares will all be in a line. It'll be really, really specky, okay? August 24th, Saturn, Mars and Antares in that order will all be in a line. And I think we mentioned on the program before that Antares is a name for the star and that means the rival of Mars because it's a reddish-looking star and similar sort of brightness. And when you see Mars and Antares right next to each other, you can, you can get an idea why they named it that. And also look out on uh, September the 9th because you'll have Saturn, Mars and Antares and the first quarter moon will be in the same area as well and the four of them will sort of make up a square. So that should be a pretty special 
Becky site. Now, out to the west after the sun's gone down for the rest of this month, look for the bright planet Jupiter near the horizon, the, west, the western horizon after the sun has set. And just to its left, smaller and somewhat dimmer, is another bright-looking little star. Well, it's not a star, it's the planet Mercury. So you get two planets for the price of one there. And in the last week of August, Venus is going to start coming up from the horizon as, as it's coming out from behind the sun again. And you're going to get Jupiter, Mercury and Venus all there together, very close together on August the 27th and 28th. And this is being billed actually as the best planetary grouping to see for the entire year. So do make sure you take a look, 27th, 28th of August, or even a day or two either side, doesn't really matter if you get some bad weather or something, make sure you take a look, Jupiter, Mercury and Venus. Now, you might have heard of a meteor shower that was on uh, just not too long ago, uh, earlier this month. Of course, the Perseids meteor shower, and it was every bit as spectacular as people in the Northern Hemisphere claimed it was going to be, 150 <laughs> to 200 meteors an hour. Yeah, look, the Perseid meteor shower is pretty reliable to put on a really good show. A meteor shower happens when uh, a, a trail of uh, little particles that are left behind in the wake of a comet as it goes around the, uh, the sun. When we as the Earth sort of run into this trail of debris, like a smoke trail even, going through space, and when these little particles hit in our atmosphere, they all sort of hit roughly the one spot, and they all seem to radiate out from this one little spot in the sky, more or less, and you get a shower. These are distinct from what we call sporadic meteors, which are just general random bits of junk floating around out there in space, you know, little, little particles of dust and rock and stuff, and they can appear in any part of the sky at any time of the day or night. But you get these meteor showers, and Percy it comes around this same time every year. It's a really specky shower for people in the Northern Hemisphere. Here's me a moment ago saying, well, <laughs> everything's great down here in the South. Well, they get a pretty good meteor shower up there, the Perseids. So, yeah, it, it was really, really good. We tend not to see these meteors. Yet occasionally you might get one that's uh, streaked long enough through the sky that it reaches over our northern horizon and it comes down. So good luck for everyone up there that saw that. I hope you had good weather for it. But don't despair because for us down here in the South, we do have two really good meteor showers coming up uh, in the next few months. We've got one called the Orionids in October. These meteors appear to come from the region of Orion, the constellation we mentioned earlier. And then in November, we have the Leonids, which are, as the name suggests, seem to come from the constellation Leo. They usually are pretty good meteor showers too, not quite as good as the Perseids. The Leonids in years past have been absolutely specky. Um, I think it's every 33 years or something like that they, uh, they put on a really good show. Don't quote me on that figure, but there's some gap between really, really good shows. Anyway, so we've got a couple of good meteor showers coming up in the next few months and uh, more about those next time, Stuart. Mm. And of course the Perseids come from the comet Swift-Tuttle, the, the debris trail left by that specific comet. And Swift-Tuttle is a rather interesting claim to fame. Did you know it's the most dangerous object to humanity? Why is it the most dangerous object to humanity, uh, Stuart? Because in about 40,000 years' time, it's an object which could very well crash into the Earth. Oh dear, I'm not going to be able to sleep now. <laughs> I'm going to be out there tonight trying to spot it and keep an eye on it. And work out how to stop it. Yeah, work at 40,000 40, years, is it? About 40,000 years, yeah. yeah. 40,000 years. Of course, there are lots of uh, other things floating around out there in space that um, do pose a more immediate risk, don't they? Uh, these oh, yeah, we've near, got... Near-Earth objects and things, yeah. We've yeah. got Apophis is one of them. They're going to be making some rather interesting approaches in the next couple of years. That's right, yeah. Uh, there's some, Not some close enough few... to damage us, but close enough to make us you know, look up and monitor closely. Well, yeah, and the thing is that any misses 
is a good miss, if you like. But look, there, there is going to be one of these things out there one day with our name on it, and it's going to be coming straight for us. And uh, you Asteroids know, are nature's way of asking you, so how's that space program going? Yes, <laughs> how's your colonisation of other planets going? So one of, one of these days, one of these things is going to be coming, coming straight for us. But the irony, I think, with these sorts of things is that theoretically, we can go out, if we've got enough warning, we can go out and deflect an object like Apophis or any of these other sort of asteroids or even a comet coming towards us if we have enough lead time that we technically can yeah. do it. The, That's the, the funny know, thing. Uh, we can't do anything about tsunamis or earthquakes or volcanic eruptions it. or any of nature's other great disasters, the next great black death type disease to infect humanity. We can't do much about that sort of stuff. But uh, asteroid impact, the thing which wiped out the dinosaurs or all the dinosaurs other than birds, that's something we can do something about with enough warning time. That's right. All these other things, we can react to them. But if we have enough warning time for a, uh, an impact or coming our way, then yeah, we can uh, theoretically deflect it. And I'm, I'm sure that one day when one is coming our way and we have enough time, then we will go out and do that. And the thing is that, you know, people ask me, oh, why are we only hearing about this now? It's because 50 years ago, we didn't realize how many of these things are out there. And as people just started discovering more and more of them, they thought, oh, there's a lot of these things out there. Perhaps we should take a closer look. And the more you look, the more you find. And all of a sudden you realize it's a really dangerous place out there. There's stuff flying around all over the joint. But fortunately, these large impacts are few and far between. But look, remember that one in Chelyabinsk? Uh, a couple of years, years ago, ago, yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was only a tiny thing in the, on the order of tens of meters across. And, you know, that caused some damage on the ground. If it had been 10 times the size, it could have flattened that city. And imagine one that's, you know, that's hundreds of meters across. Imagine one a kilometer across or more. As you say, you know, a big one probably wiped out the dinosaurs. And there may have been other mass extinctions caused by these things too. You just have to look up at the moon and see all the craters and know that that thing got pummeled over the billions of years. Well, if it got pummeled and we're right next door, we would have got pummeled too. We just don't see the evidence of it anymore because we've got a lot of erosion here on our planet where you don't have much erosion up there on the moon. So it's happened before, it'll happen again and, uh, you know, we need to spend a little bit of money, I call it insurance, to find these things and do something about them once we see one coming our way. The thing that always puts a shiver down my back is a recollection of an interview I did when we were doing Star Stuff on the ABC. I was speaking to an astronomer from the Australian Astronomical Observatory, as it was back then, the Anglo-Australian Observatory, and uh, he was telling me about how he was spotting an asteroid one day. He was looking at this object and was getting closer and looked at it and he thought to himself, that's awfully close. I wonder if it's going to hit. And when he said that, that just drove me cold. That was, that was freaky. Yeah, well, it's like um, it's a bit like being stuck on the train tracks and you see a train coming. You think, is it going to stop in time? Yeah, they usually like, don't. They don't, no, no. Well, that's the thing. <laughs> so uh, if an asteroid's coming to it, it's not going to stop either. We have to go out and stop it. That's Jonathan Nally, the editor of Australian Sky and Telescope magazine. And that's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Spacetime as a free twice-weekly podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, Audio Boom, and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. For more, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. Just search for Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This show is also broadcast coast to coast across the United States on Science 360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. Subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, or Audio Boom. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, this month exploring the mystery of fast radio bursts. 